Now, this morning, I'm going to uh, take us to the book of Romans. <laughs> a month ago, we, we preached from the uh, uh, electionary reading in the, in the epistle, Romans chapter 7. Um, and we left everyone hanging. In Romans chapter 7, we saw that Paul, the great apostle Paul, was unable to stop sinning. Their sin got a grip on him, and he tried, and he tried, and he just couldn't break it. And he drove him to, to a point of frustration. And finally, Paul concluded, you know, Jesus is going to have to, to, to set me free from this. And, uh, but, but that, and that's where we left off. So let's turn to Romans, and we'll start in chapter 7 with the last two verses. Paul's conclusion, after his struggle with sin and with trying to to live righteously and to do follow according to God's plan. <laughs> he said in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, and then he answers in verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, what a relief. What a relief to know that Jesus will set us free from sin. <clears throat> And then, turn the page, chapter 8, Paul tells us how Jesus does this. So we're going to read chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh <coughs> and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For, the <coughs> for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. <coughs> but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is death, is <clears throat> hostile to God, for it does not submit to God. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. <clears throat> Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you. Here ends the reading of, the, of our text for this morning. And let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Grant us, O Lord God, the knowledge of your divine words and fill us with the understanding of your holy gospel and the riches of your divine gifts and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Enable us with joy to keep your holy commandments and accomplish them and fulfill your will and to be accounted worthy of the blessings and the mercies that are from you now and at all times. Amen. <clears throat>
I did it again. It took until I was partway through my afternoon jog, but then I remembered my decision to start each day with prayer. That's a good idea, don't you think? Um, a lot of people do this and recommend it, um, and it seems like uh, that uh, this is the kind of thing that we ought to be doing. Now, I wasn't intending to start the day with a prayer marathon like this great spiritual heroes. I only intended to start the day with a brief acknowledgement of God's presence and blessings and, and request for help in the coming day. Even children do this, don't they? I mean, this seems fairly simple. And here I was, a minister of the gospel. You would think that beginning the day with prayer was a habit that I had established decades ago. Now, I mean, it's not that I never prayed or prayed infrequently. In fact, I was praying while I was jogging, and that's what made me think about this. But that's why, that's what made me think and reflect on that morning's failure. Ouch, failure. Decent Christians don't talk that way, do they? Christians live a victorious life. Christians overcome sin, live in holiness. Failure is so discouraging, so unspiritual. Failure reeks of legalism. Christians rejoice in the gospel and pursue the victorious life. Well, call it what you will. The fact is that for many years, I didn't begin the day with prayer. I often prayed at other times, but there was always something clamoring for my immediate attention as soon as I woke up. Of course, none of those things were really urgent, but somehow they grabbed my attention. It should have been easy to put them off for five or ten minutes until I began the day with at least a few minutes of prayer, but I didn't. So call it what you will, but not doing what I planned to do and wanted to do qualifies as failure for me. Well, at least I'm in good company. As we mentioned, the great apostle Paul was also a failure. In his letter to the Romans, chapter 7, he recounts how over and over again he committed to some virtuous action and yet failed to execute. No matter how hard he tried, he was unable to do what he wanted to do. No amount of planning, no amount of willpower was sufficient. It practically drove him mad. And he cries out at the end of this chapter, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, have you been this desperate? I'm guessing that most of us here know what it's like to try our hardest to do the right thing and fail to, to follow through. And maybe some of us here have been failing for a long time. How could this be? How could it be that Christians do this? It's no surprise that non-Christians sin, and those of us who became Christians and started believing in Christ as adults can clearly remember what it was like to live sinning all through the day. It makes sense that those who aren't following Christ will do whatever pleases them, and often those are acts of sin, but Christians have been saved from sin. Jesus died for our sins. He calls us to a life of holiness. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit to lead us to godly behavior. How could we fail so definitively and so consistently? And Paul discovered that the explanation for the ongoing presence of sin in the life of believers is sin. Sin is not only acts of rebellion against God, but sin 
Sin with a capital S is a power lodged in our human nature, which Paul calls the flesh. Christians truly, sincerely want to please God, but sin attacks us from the inside and ruins our plans. Sin is so powerful, it prevents us from doing what we wish. It prevented Paul. Paul could not do what he wanted to do because sin was more powerful than Paul. And I'll tell you, sin is more powerful than you. Sin prevents you from doing what you want. And this is why Paul cried out, who's going to deliver me from this? But the good news, as Paul said, is that Jesus will, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus will save us from sin. We cannot love God with our whole heart. We cannot love our neighbor. We cannot even love our spouse and our children consistently. We can't even pray every morning. On our own, we're going to fail over and over again. But Christ is present to help us. And Christ is going to succeed wherever we fail. As we keep reading Paul's letter, Paul explains how it is that Jesus defeats sin and our flesh. So Paul gives us two points and then one application. So chapter 8 opens with that thrilling declaration, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, it's such a relief and a comfort to know that Jesus has paid for all our sins, past, present, and future, by his death on the cross. And like Pilgrim in Bunyan's allegory, we feel the, we felt the weight of an unbearable burden fall off our shoulders when we embraced Christ. But you know, that's not all. Because as he paid for our sins, Jesus also credited us with righteousness. Jesus died as the worst human being that ever lived, and he made us as innocent and as righteous as the only begotten Son of God. Christ died as the worst human being. He made us as righteous as the Son of God. And as Dave Barry often said, I'm not making this up. I know that this is too good to be true, but it is true. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news that every sinner might be forgiven and considered righteous when he trusts in Christ. But this once-for-all payment for sins is not what this verse is addressing. That's the foundation. Paul lays that, has laid that in the earlier chapters of the book. Paul began the letter by proving that every man, woman, and child in every nation is guilty of sin under God's terrible anger and destined for destruction. Then in chapters 3 through 5, Paul showed that he can be declared innocent, well, forgiven and declared innocent by faith in Christ. Later in chapter 5, Paul showed that when Jesus rose from the dead, he instituted a new race, a new race, a new type of humanity. And everyone who believes in Jesus is part of this new race. Paul explained in chapter 6 that baptism is what brings us into that new race, a life so intimately connected to Jesus that it makes no sense to continue acts of sin. But when we read chapter 7, we see that Paul found it impossible to stop sinning. And it's in this context, it's in the context of daily struggle and failure to avoid sin that Paul says there's no condemnation. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, like Paul, struggle with sin, yet God does not condemn us. Now, of course, you say there's no condemnation. We just talked about that a few minutes ago. Didn't Paul show in chapters 3 and 4 that Jesus paid for all our sins, past, present, and future, and give us the verdict of righteous? So why is this an issue? Condemnation is an issue. It's a big issue. It's a huge issue because we consistently do sinful acts and feel condemned. And those are real feelings. We really feel condemned. And we know in secret, even if we don't admit it publicly, that those feelings are accurate. We really do sinful things. We really don't measure up, not even to our own standards, much less to God's. We know that any reasonable person is going to condemn us, and they do. We live in the fear and the shame of condemnation from people all around us for the real sins that we're really guilty of. And if God is telling the truth, that he considers us righteous, then the facts don't square with the truth. Paul here provides three reasons why, in fact, it is reasonable for God not to condemn us. Three reasons why it is reasonable that God wouldn't condemn us. First, God condemned sin in the flesh. God doesn't condemn us. God condemned something else. God condemned sin in the flesh. The son, and here's how it works. The Son of God came as a true man of human flesh. You know, Jesus was a human being. He had the same flesh that you have, the flesh that came from Adam. You know, the flesh that's, that for, in us is polluted by sin. Jesus had that flesh, but without sin. He came as a true man of human flesh, and he overcame sin in the flesh. Jesus lived a perfect, righteous life in the flesh. And then he died, an innocent man, in the flesh. It was a man of flesh that died. And consequently, by this act, God condemned sin in the flesh. See, we're at war, folks. Sin is going to kill us if it's left unrestrained. God entered this war and took our side. He took our side against sin. The death of Jesus was not only payment for the penalty of sin. Jesus' death was the execution of that power in our flesh. When Jesus died, suddenly sin in our flesh no longer had the power to control us. We might feel that it does, but those feelings are wrong. Sin in the flesh has been condemned by God. God knows that we commit acts of sin because sin in our flesh, it's still there and it's beating us up. And God is not going to beat us up. God knows that sin in our flesh is dragging us into awful things from time to time. God knows that. God knows that we don't want it, but it happens because sin is, 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 is at work in us and God takes our side against sin. God condemns that sin And he did so definitively when Jesus died. God is on our side. Jesus broke the power of sin by his death, and God condemned sin. God knows why we sin. God will never condemn us for falling victim to sin in our flesh. Secondly, Paul says that God will not condemn us because we are not under the law. 
Paul reminded us in chapter 6 that Jesus was born under the law and died under the law. He pointed out in chapter 7 that the law only applies to living people. He illustrated this principle by pointing out that a woman is free to remarry when her husband dies. When her husband died, the marriage is over. Laws about marriage and adultery just don't apply to her anymore, so she can marry someone else. Christ was born under the law. He died under the law. The law doesn't apply to him anymore. When Jesus was resurrected, he was resurrected a new creation. Jesus was not resuscitated. His body of flesh didn't come back to life. That body of flesh is dead. Jesus was recreated, resurrected as a new creation, a new body, a new spiritual body. And just as Adam is the head of the original human race, so Jesus is the head of a new human race. And just as everyone born on earth inherits the characteristics of Adam, the founder of their race, so everyone born from above inherits the characteristics of Jesus, the founder of our race. And just as everyone on earth shares a connection with all humanity, shares a connection. You know, we all inherit the sin from Adam because we're all connected into him. In the same way, everyone born from above is connected to Jesus. And this is what Paul means by his repeated comment that we are in Christ. We're connected to him in some kind of a metaphysical, spiritual way. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. So although we... we have not yet died in the flesh and received our spiritual bodies. Jesus has. Jesus has died in the flesh. He does have a new spiritual body. But since we're connected to him, we get the credit for that. We get to act that way. We get to act as though we have new spiritual bodies, although we don't in reality yet. Jesus died under the law. The law no longer applies to him. What is true of Jesus has become true true of Christians. So the law doesn't apply to us. So, So on what basis could God condemn us? When we were in the flesh, when we were members of Adam's race, we were justly condemned because we constantly broke the law, and the law did apply to us then. But now that we're in the spirit, now that we're members of Jesus's race, we're not guilty of breaking any law because there's no law that applies to us. (laughs) You know, you can't can't convict somebody of breaking the law if there isn't any law. And for us, there isn't any law. So the second reason why God has no intention ever of condemning us is because there's nothing to condemn. I mean, we do things that we shouldn't do, but he can't condemn us because there's no law to condemn us with. Well, furthermore, and third, God will not condemn us because we are, in fact, fulfilling the law. Now, a lot of people read verse 4 as a command, but it's obviously not a command. And if you're skeptical, yes, I checked the Greek on this, and it's not an imperative form. This is not a command. It's a statement about the future. We will, we will fulfill the requirements of the law. Now, that's true. We're not doing it right now very, very well. (laughs) We're struggling. This is the whole point. We're struggling to do this, but it is happening. Christ has put in place 
the conditions in which this is certain to happen. This is not in doubt. This, this is certain to happen, and it's a process that is happening right now. As we walk with Christ, more and more we measure up to the requirements of the law. Now, we've established that the law doesn't apply to us as a legally binding requirement, but, God, but Paul reminded us in chapter 7 that the law is spiritual, righteous, and good. The law is good. It's a good thing to fulfill the requirements of the law, even if we aren't legally obligated to do so. But as we succeed in keeping the law, well, of course, in that case, it, it would make no sense for God or anyone else to condemn us. Well, so from every angle, it may, would make sense that God would refuse to condemn us even as we struggle with sin. Other people will condemn us, but their condemnation is invalid. We were thrilled and relieved to hear that God would accept us sinners on the basis of Jesus' death, and we're equally thrilled and relieved to hear that God will continue to accept us in spite of our struggle to be faithful to him. God declares that there is no condemnation because that is the foundation to the Christian life. You don't go anywhere in the Christian life without understanding this, without this being fixed in your life. This is the foundation that, that God will not, can, does not and will not condemn us. God will never condemn us, and so we're free from the crippling effects of guilt. God will never condemn us, so we're free from the paralyzing effects of fear. Because God will never condemn us, we feel encouraged always to come to Jesus. On good days, on bad days, when we do well, when we fail, when we succeed, when we don't succeed, Jesus is always delighted to have us he, because there's no condemnation. There's nothing we can do to make him mad at us. Jesus is always delighted with us, and as we come... As we come to Jesus, then Jesus defeats sin in our flesh. There's no hope of defeating sin in our flesh by the power of the flesh. The flesh is the problem. The only way sin in the flesh can be defeated is by Jesus doing it for us. And we will never come to Jesus if we feel guilty and are afraid of punishment. We'll never come to Jesus if we're afraid of him if we're afraid that he'll be angry with us. The only way that we can come to Jesus is when we're sure, when we're confident that he will accept us, that he will take care of us, that he'll be good to us, good for us. And that is the assurance that we have. When we know that God will never condemn us, even when we fail, then we're free to come to Jesus all the time. And when we are with Jesus, he drains the power out of sin in the flesh, and he enables us to do the righteous things that we really want to do. So is this true of you? Do you come to Jesus frequently, comfortably, in the confidence that he will welcome you? Or are you living with guilt and the fear of God's displeasure? If you are, if you are living with guilt and fear, you're living a lie. You're living something that's not true. 
your life is built on falsehood because it's just not true. When Christ has accepted you, when he baptized you in, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, that was the end of guilt and fear. If you're living in guilt and fear, you're living in, in, in a lie. And you're, and you're going to never, you're never going to be able to, to do the kind of things that you want to do. God is not displeased with you. Jesus has taken all your guilt. guilt. He's buried it in the grave. You will never overcome sin as long as you're afraid of God. If you're listening to lies, you're living in a demonic fantasy. But Jesus is not lying to you. The gospel is really true. It's very hard to believe, but it is true. And I encourage you, believe it. Believe the gospel. Believe that it's true, that there's no condemnation when you're in Christ. Jesus is the answer. And another way of putting it is that we are living in the spirit. The law of sin and death has been replaced by the law of the spirit. In, in other words, once the law regulated our lives, now the spirit regulates our lives. The law was a powerless requirement that constantly judged us. The spirit is a powerful person who constantly encourages us. The law was a powerless requirement that constantly judged us. The spirit is a powerful person who constantly encourages us. The message of the law always was, you failed again. The message of the spirit is always, come, I'll help you. I'll help you with that. We who are in Christ walk according to the spirit. Now, here's another verse that some people misinterpret as a command, but it's not a command. It's a description. You, you, you who are in Christ, you are walking by the spirit. Did you know that, that you are walking by the spirit? So you might say, is the spirit leading you to sin when you fall into temptation? Well, of course not. You're walking according to the spirit, but you're not a robot. You're not a puppet. It's not as though the spirit forces each one of your limbs to do one thing or another. You're walking with the spirit. And, you know, sometimes you walk closer than others and occasionally you fall into a ditch, but you always get out and keep going. Your life is in going in the same direction as the, as the spirit. You walk more or less straight or crooked, but your direction, your constant pattern is to stay in step with the Spirit. At least, that's what this scripture says. Could it be that your life is actually closer to the Spirit than you are aware? Could it be that even when you are tuned out from God, God is still walking with you, walking beside you? Could it be that God keeps you on the path. Well, you know, what's even harder to believe, to understand, is verse 11, which says that the Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. Of course, the Spirit will prepare new spiritual bodies for us, patterned after Jesus' resurrection body, but that's not what this verse is referring to. And that's why it emphasizes that it is our mortal bodies that the Spirit enlivens. 
Yeah, these bodies of ours, with our aches and our pains, these bodies which commit acts of sin, we're, these bodies are being energized by the Holy Spirit to serve God in this world. Sin in our flesh would kill us, but the Spirit in us is making us alive. It's, it's making us more energetic, you know, more attuned to God, more able to follow him. While sin in the flesh is working to kill us, the Spirit is beating back sin in the flesh and giving us life. Now, I think it's hard to comprehend what it means to live in the Spirit. Uh, we talked about this at Men's Breakfast. My material mind can understand what it means to live in a house or in a tent. You know, you find the door and you walk through. Uh, how would you live in the Spirit? Well, of course, one aspect of this sort of language is to communicate the closeness of the relationship. But I don't talk that way about other relationships. I don't, I don't talk th that way about my wife. I, I don't say I am living in Ruth. You know, we just don't say that. Um, and I feel very close to my wife. The New Testament, however, speaks of entering and living in many things. The kingdom of God, the heavenlies, the new heavens and new earth, the communion of saints. The scripture talks about living in these things. And I, I think that they're all the same thing. They're different words, different terms for this new reality a different mode of existence, a different dimension, an alternate reality that overlaps with this present world. The world of the Spirit is where we find the throne of God, the Lamb of God, the sevenfold Spirit, the saints who went before us. It's a world of love and power, glory, eternity. In this world that we're speaking of, men, women, and angels always love and worship God. And we've entered that world. Now, we're strangers yet, some of us more than others. It's a new world for us, and it can seem strange. And we, sometimes we're not always convinced that we're there, feel our way around in it. But the longer we live in this world, we are transformed from unimpressive beings into glorious sons of God. Simply being in the spirit destroys any remaining sin in our flesh until God replaces these mortal bodies with the glorious bodies that the spirit has created for us. Well, this is what Paul discovered, and this is what he is saying in this book. You cannot defeat sin because you are a man of the flesh in the world of the flesh. Sin is more powerful than men and women. The only way to escape the power of sin is to enter a world free from sin and ruled by powers stronger than sin. Praise Christ, we have entered that world. Christ is the beginning of the spiritual heavens and earth. Baptism ushers us into that world where there is no condemnation and which is inhabited and powered by the Holy Spirit. The law activated sin in the flesh, but the law has no jurisdiction over us now. Now we're ruled by the spirit of life, and this spirit is steadily defeating sin. More and more, our lives actually fulfill the righteousness demanded by the law, but it's the spirit at work in us who accomplishes this. 
Now, are you skeptical? Are you thinking, it doesn't seem like sin is diminishing in life, and it's certainly not diminishing in the lives of other Christians who annoy me. (laughs) Well, you know, perhaps there's a log in your eye. Perhaps you're not looking closely enough. Or, does this sound too good to be true? Well, yeah, it does, doesn't it? This, this does sound too good to be true. But, it, but isn't that consistent with the gospel? Isn't the gospel always too good to be true? So the fundamental question is this. What are you going to trust? Your perception or God's word? Your perception or God's word? So what does this mean? Does this mean you should ignore sin and happily do whatever pleases you? Is, is there nothing for Christians to do? Are you, are you just Jesus' pet, happy to be here with no responsibilities? Well, absolutely not. <clears throat> Some people think and teach this, but that's nonsense. This passage shows that we are expected to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We are debtors to live according to the Spirit And in conclusion, we're expected to put to death the deeds of the body. And how are we to do that? That sounds like work. After all we've said, is Paul just laying the law on us again? If we seek to put to death the deeds of the body by strenuous effort, we will indeed be subjecting ourselves to the law. It will be hard and frustrating and and in failure. But Paul has already shown us how to put to death the deeds of the body successfully. First, we put to death the deeds of the body by walking according to the Spirit. We just discussed that a little bit. The Spirit is not a law. The Spirit is a person. Drawing up a list of duties will not help us. Memorizing requirements will wear us out. We put to death the deeds of the body by setting our minds on the things of the spirit, by talking with him, by listening to his voice, by walking with the spirit. It's like walking with any other person. Imagine taking a walk with a friend. You enjoy each other's company. Oops. (laughs) Sorry. You enjoy each other's company. You talk about what you've seen. Uh, You talk about the things that are on your mind. Um, And um, I'll lose my place here. So we're talking about walking with the Spirit and what it means to walk with the Spirit as a person because the the Spirit is a person. The Spirit is not another law. And so we walk with him and um, in the same way that we walk with another kind of a person. And we'll continue here in a moment. So, yes, so walking in the Spirit is like that. Walking with the Spirit is more a matter of who you are with than what you are doing. Now, if you live this way, if you live this way under the Spirit, you will come under condemnation of the world, the flesh, and the devil. There will be people who will say, who will accuse you of doing this or of not doing that. The devil 
will choose every opportunity to try to convince you that you're a bad person and deserve to be condemned. Your own flesh is going to attack you. <clears throat> this happened to Jesus. People condemn Jesus, <clears throat> and he, they will condemn you as well. Walking with the Spirit means reminding yourself that there is no condemnation for Christ, children. Rejecting the condemnation of your enemies. You know, the world, the flesh, and the devil don't condemn you because they want to improve you. They are your enemies. They want to hurt you. you now, you should accept any, and you should profit by any valid criticism, but reject condemnation. Second, we put to death the deeds of the body by living in the spirit. So first, we put to death the deeds of the body by rejecting condemnation, not allowing any condemnation to settle in our hearts and minds, putting it out. Second, we, we put to death the deeds of the body by living in the spirit. Remember, we ha- inhabit a new world. Accept God's love. Don't hold God at arm's length. Accept his love. Trust God to know what he's doing. He's confusing, right? Of course. If if you haven't been confused by God, you haven't been paying attention. I mean, God is very confusing. He confuses us all the time. Um, And so the question is, does he know what he's doing? Can we trust him? Well, uh, walking by the Spirit means trusting God to know what he's doing. Expect God to complete his kingdom in his own way, on his own schedule, live faithfully in this world, but keeping your focus on the world to come, which has already come for us. The more we inhabit the world to come, the more the deeds of the body fade away. Now, I know that some of you are thinking, I need some help. This all sounds wonderful, but I still don't know what to do. Okay, first an essential perspective and then some things to do. Remember, the Spirit is a person. Walking with the Spirit means doing things with a person. Now, this is important because we have a tendency to make a list and check things off as we go. That is not walking with the Spirit. Is that how you live with your husband? Perhaps you do have a list of some things to remember on a particular day, uh, it's a good thing to have a shopping list when you go grocery shopping. You know, I, I, I like I have all kinds of lists. Lists are really helpful. But do you measure your relationships by that way? <clears throat> do you measure the strength of your relationship by the completeness of your list? If you do, I recommend marriage counseling. <laughs> yes, a list can be very important, but it's not a, a measure of the strength of your relationship. Do you talk with each other? Do you share your joys and fears? Do you work together? Do you eat together? These are some of the ways in which you grow closer to another person. It's the same with friends, with colleagues, or any person, including the Holy Spirit. Read the Bible. So you want to know what to do. Read the Bible. Not as a duty to cross off the list, but to hear from your friend, the Spirit. Pray. Not to get results, not because you need X, Y, and Z done by a certain deadline. You can can do that, but that's not all. That's That's not what prayer consists of. Pray to share your worries, to share your thoughts, your opinions with your friend, the Spirit. 
receive the Lord's Supper, not as a memory aid, the way some people think of it. I mean, how boring, how awful to think of the, the Lord's Supper is just a memory aid. Or neither to receive the Lord's Supper as your weekly infusion of grace. No, it's not an infusion of grace. That's an, that is an equally awful thought. No, but we receive the Lord's Supper as a fellowship with our friend, the Spirit. Of course, the big difference between the Spirit and human persons is that the Spirit is invisible. You can't verify his presence with your eyes and ears. The only way you can be convinced of his presence is by his own promise. And so the question is, do you trust him? When God says he is present in the scripture, is he telling the truth? When God says he hears your prayer, is it really true? Is God, does, does your prayer connect to the creator of the universe? Does Jesus truly meet you in that bread and wine? Jesus kills sin in your flesh as you are with the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to you in the scripture, in prayer, and in the sacraments. And as we encounter, as we surround ourselves, as we immerse ourselves in the Spirit, in the scriptures, in prayer, and in the sacraments, little by little, progressively, over time, God drains the power of sin in our flesh, drains out that power, and enables us more and more, by day and day, year by year, to live in righteousness. The most spiritually powerful event of your life is the Lord's Day Liturgy here on this day that Jesus has reserved for himself. Jesus calls us together. He preaches the gospel to us again. He listens carefully as we pray, and then he offers his own body to us in love. The devil cries out in his fierce anger. The demons shiver in terror. The saints rejoice, and all God's people praise the Lamb when we perform the Lord's Day Liturgy. Here, for a moment, there's no sin, but only holiness. There's no fear, but only love. There's no longing, but contentment. For a moment, we go further up and further into heaven, above the crystal firmament, through the open door. We gather around the throne. For a moment, we taste the fullness of marriage to the Lamb. And then we return to the world to re-engage the war with sin. But we, we return having seen and heard and tasted the world to come. And we know that we're on the way to eternity, that eternity is beckoning, and we are re-energized for the battle against sin. Our Father, thank you for sending your only begotten Son in the flesh to rescue us from the power of sin in the flesh. Thank you for pouring all your punishment for our sin upon Jesus. Thank you for sending your spirit to be our companion on the way to eternity. We rejoice that in all our struggles, successes, and failures, you will never condemn us. But Father, one of our chief struggles is that we do forget. We think that you are like us, harboring resentments, nursing grudges, 
ready to make us pay for all the trouble we cause. How wicked of us. Thank you, Father, that even in this you do not condemn us, but always welcome us as your beloved children. And now thank you for calling us into heaven today where we might find rest and refreshment in your presence. Lord, we ask nothing other than to keep us clinging ever more closely to you. Help us to walk more in step with the Spirit. Return us throughout the day to your word and to prayer. And let us never lightly esteem our communion with you in the Lord's Supper. Let us rejoice in this hour that you share your own body with us, your beloved children. And this we pray in the name of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now to him who loved us to death, who loves us still, and who will love us for eternity, be all glory, majesty, and power now and at all times from every tribe, nation, and language in heaven and on earth forever and ever. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.